0: Welcome to GradCast. This is the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Nick.
1: And I'm Chantal.
0: And today we have a very special episode because for one of the first times in GradCast history, we have a returning guest on the show, a part two, if you will. About a year ago, we interviewed Natasha Oslis and she is back to tell us more about her work and the interesting things that she thinks about and discovers with her research. So thank you for coming on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me again, Nick and Chantal. I really appreciate it.
1: Now, Natasha, for our listeners who didn't get a chance to hear your first episode, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the lab, the teamwork lab that you're part of here and the sort of area of research that your your work focuses on?
2: Uh, I am in the PhD program in psychology called Industrial and Organizational Psychology. So the teamwork lab focuses on team and organizations and how uh, aspects of the team experience like cohesion commitment and the composition of the team will impact the kind of innovation their performance uh, grades in some of our samples of uh, engineering student teams over in the engineering department will kind of be affected by these psychological principles
0: so Natasha why don't you uh, tell us a bit about what you've done in the year since we last talked to you.
2: (laughs) So uh, in that year, I, on the school side, have finished classes in comps, so now I'm a PhD candidate working on my dissertation. Uh, Last time you met me when I was just one month into the PhD, so a lot of things have happened since then. Um, And on the other side, I started to do some freelance consulting and work with a few people on the um, sort of applied research side and applying the things that we've been learning in the past couple years in my program to workplaces and organizations uh, around Canada. So what's really fun about that is, one, to actually take everything that we learn, we do in this ivory tower, and bring it out there and really try to evangelize an evidence-based approach. Um, And two, to really create also new knowledge by applying this stuff and then taking that back into research, testing those strategies out, and adding to the kind of techniques that we use in um, our academic world.
1: But so you're particularly interested in the formation of teams. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
2: I th- with a lot of my dissertation now, it's like the how the inputs will create um, team experiences of conflict, if some kind of conflict are good or bad, so the starting segment of that, and then how that trajectory will go over time. So maybe some teams will sort of fight more and more as mm. we start to measure that over time. So the, the masters that I discussed a lot in the beginning was like, how do we create that collaboration? Like, what are the starting you know, moments or kind of ingredients for that. And now I'm looking a lot at that longitudinal, like, overtime aspect um, of these team experiences and how we can improve the teams by reducing their conflict, conflict management strategies, putting the right people together as well. So there's definitely that component of, like, how do we compose and organize the
1: team? And as part of your time is spent sort of in the lab and another part of your time is spent – doing some consulting and that and and working sort of in the in the real world Mm -hmm. what do you find do you find that there's a close connection between the two or do you find that there's a need for more dialogue between those two spaces of thinking about this stuff
2: absolutely there's a gap we can close on both sides um and i just actually submitted to a conference a controversial opinion within our field which would be that both sides of this science practice gap, if you will, could benefit by doing more testing and more experimentation. Because we do a lot of really, like, theory-driven, correlational, kind of multivariate, sophisticated and complex statistics. But if we just said, let's try to, say, improve the team's experience, let's compare this condition with another, and let's say, here's some actionable research that people could take back to their practice. Mm. And people on the practice side, because they use some kinds of evidence, and statistics. You know, they're always like HBR said this and McKinsey said this. They're searching for evidence and and facts to back them up, but they don't have the access, right? And the actionable research that often comes from academia, and they could benefit by testing their own solutions, their you know tech platforms, their interventions, and then providing high quality evidence saying this works, and you should choose us because we've actually checked you know, what works and why.
0: Mm. So what are some of the examples that researchers are using to bridge that gap? Like, I'm wondering if there are specific questions that are being asked in that sort of more simple way that you mm-hmm. that you mentioned.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, a whole area that's really new in IO psychology and organizational psychology is taking the idea that we can redesign context, go and do field experiments and take the ideas that we know in the theory of like how things are all related to each other and put those out there. And so a lot of people are applying these concepts to testing whether open offices are uh, better or worse than your standard kind of cubicle approach and what they're finding with that when they did um, a study as an organization completely revamped the physical locations and setup of their offices is that they actually decrease face-to-face communication when people move to an open office really and you'd be surprised because we're all right there but they're also so Sort of overstimulating kind yeah. of places. And so if you've got all the headphones yeah. on, everyone actually can retreat into their own world more. They yeah. increase their use of like Slack, type, email communication and stuff. Cause if you're talking, you're kind of talking to everybody now.
0: Right. Plus, everyone just gets annoyed with everyone.
2: Yeah, (laughs) so you don't want to be that
0: person. Yeah, exactly. And then you can
2: imagine it does the opposite of what's intended, which is why it's so crucial to test. So that's one place where researchers are partnering with companies and they're saying, let's evaluate whether this was a good idea. Another cool one is a work from home policy, Mm -hmm. where there's a company where they had half the people said, you stay wherever you want. You don't have to come into the office. This is in a, a company headquartered in Hong Kong. And they compared the productivity, the amount of sick days people were using, um, the lateness, you know, all those kind of metrics, as well as the cost that that took to the company. And they mm. found that the people who worked from home were more productive. No way. And they, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Because you think, oh, I'm just in my pajamas. Yeah, like exactly. I'm goofing off. Yeah, So the thing is, like, you won't get sick from your coworkers as much because you're not physically there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You won't be late and have all this, you know, productivity drain from, like, the subway, you know, not working and the transit is not, like, bad and then the traffic is happening. And the office space was so expensive. They're in, like, downtown in Mm -hmm. the middle of Hong Kong. Like, it's just extremely, extremely costly that if they could have people working from home they're like saving thousands of dollars per person
1: but to what extent yeah. do some do, do mm-hmm. policies like that offload those costs onto the employees okay. is that a so- does that sh- get talked about it definitely
2: could be managed properly or not right so these are ones this is one study where you could actually create an open office that perhaps solves these issues Uh you could have small places where people could be talking to each other and activity-based working so if i need a quiet space i have a quiet space if i need a big open space i have that Mm. and that could mitigate those issues like you're saying for the work from home approach you could have people exploit that and say everyone is gonna now be more productive so now you're gonna work way more hours cuz you're not goofing off talking to everybody and you could then take that too far Mm -hmm. right so when this one study finds this is the situation there's a lot of context that went into they had these intentions their current approach was this the kind of work they were doing could be done from home Mm -hmm. the kind of resources they need as you're saying are maybe a laptop the company provides, maybe there's no paper necessary. So there's no photocopier. Right. I mean, just to sort of imagine what it could be like, it doesn't mean that would universally work for everyone in both of those cases of the examples.
0: But, Natasha, you mentioned these examples and you talk about using evidence to evaluate whether or not these, you know, questions are real or not. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering where these questions come from in the first place, because I would imagine that when companies are trying to implement these new and improved methods, they are using quote unquote evidence of themselves to bring this into play. So where do they come up with these things without real evidence?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of what I would call just like the beanbag effect. So, you know, Google has beanbag chairs and now everyone has beanbag chairs because Google is successful, therefore the beanbag chairs are what made them successful. We can see that with that one, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but there's huge influence of what other companies are doing. Mm -hmm. And so we're definitely looking as an organization around to what are you know popular press articles saying that I should be doing? What are the new fads? What are the next big things? Um, in leadership, we have this all the time. Every year there's like a new form of leadership people talk about. It's often not that different from the other one and definitely not any more supported, mm-hmm. but because it's new and someone said, screw the other one, that's not good, we brought in this new thing. So we're definitely taking our inspiration from all over the place, mm-hmm. but not necessarily before we implement it going, what would like the best decision be here? And could we do a little pilot before we put yeah. all of our money into the beanbag yeah. chairs? <laughs> right, yeah, and let's find
1: out how significant the beanbag chairs yeah, are to like, the outcomes we're seeing, right? Or yeah. to
2: Google, like, if you even ask them themselves, because mm-hmm. they do a lot of this data-driven work, so what do you attribute your success to? They've posted actually a ton of research um, on what makes their teams more innovative, like what are the conditions that they use to you know, make their company, such a company that other people want to copy. They don't refer to beanbag chairs in that example. <laughs> and there's a lot that they've done to test you know, on themselves. Mm-hmm. And they share some of that. So there's some places we can look for some better quality evidence. So we have to know how to evaluate, compare, and kind of critically a- appraise those things so that we know that one of them is worth more, not just because of who it's coming from, but because of the process that they took to get the answer.
1: Um, one area of your research that I personally find just like Mind-blowingly fascinating um, is how this all connects to hiring processes, the formations of these teams. What we're, what kind of questions we're asking people when we're interviewing people, and and how that can affect mm-hmm. the the sort of like teams that we end up working on or creating for ourselves. Um, and so the this brings me to like a like a, I think I guess it's like a recent. Occurrence with Amazon, they use some yeah. kind of algorithm. Is this right? Can you tell us a little bit about
2: yeah, that? for sure. So, so yeah. a little while ago, um, you know, Al- Amazon has so many jobs. I think they just posted either like twenty five thousand or like fifty thousand jobs that they're hiring for. So wow. they obviously must get millions of applications, and they need to make this process more efficient because looking at every resume, even if a person takes six seconds, I mean, it's just going to really add up. So they took this AI. Um, Platform. they tried to create an algorithm that would just choose who should be hired and not hired. Mm. And like every other tech company, Amazon has some challenges and some criticisms in the press around their representation of women in tech roles, of uh, people of color in tech roles. They have obviously these pressures that make a lot of people in your company look similar, like every company has. Mm -hmm. It's kind of similarity that we will look around and be like, everyone is like dressed the same they're talking the same there's all these ways in which they're the same so the issue with this algorithm that amazon created is it happens to look through previous resumes of who was successful okay. identify the fact that the word women's or anything kind of referring to women was a black mark that w- did not work in the past and then started to actually select people Out for these clues that they were female or for the more explicit uh, information in their resume so of course as soon as they found this after they had been working with this algorithm for a while they just scrapped that program entirely yeah but that doesn't mean there aren't ways to make hiring more efficient it's just we can't have efficiency without careful kind of control and and again piloting Mm -hmm. before we roll this out to the thousands and tens of thousands of jobs so that we can get attacking the real pressures and the similarity and all of the kind of cognitive biases the way that we make decisions that we have to design for before we can put our tech on that and then scale that up to the million applicant mark
1: basically so it sounds to me like this is a good example of how like gender can play a role in our or is like part of one of our one of our cognitive biases is that fair to say yeah, that? Yeah, like can, other ones the, that, that
2: bias can be an outcome, right? Of some oh, biases okay. that happen inside. So so when we're talking about a cognitive bias, we're saying similarity is a cognitive bias, where I feel more comfortable with someone who's similar to me. I see. And another one would be uh, what's called the availability heuristic. Whatever comes up first is going to be what we follow. We think that's like the most common because we came up with it really easily. So it must be all over the place. For example when you think of like a leader or you think of a president and you have an image of a person in your mind you have various attributes in the way that you're visualizing them and when I think I'm gonna hire this person I'm looking through these resumes for the president role I look for what are those things that match with my image in my mind gender can be one of them it can be that they're tall it can be that they are very serious they can talk in a certain way that makes them sound very very confident there's all this stuff that i'm looking for executive presence is the mm-hmm. word that sometimes they use in organizations <laughs> they just have that executive presence what does that mean
0: <laughs> i can even imagine that there's like other psychological effects that happen during hiring processes, like when you mentioned I, I, th- I thought of um, like primacy and recency mm-hmm. effects. Absolutely. Where absolutely. like the first person and the last person they the interview might be remembered more.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. So the order that you are making those decisions, whether it's a batch decision or it's one after another, can influence how you mm-hmm. kind of are looking at that set. Are mm-hmm. you looking at this together saying who again for the team is best like now i'm on the team focus i got five people i'm considering i'm gonna see how they complement each other Mm. or if i'm looking at someone by myself am i just like they have to be good at everything as an individual person because i haven't thought about what team are they going to be in and how are they going to work with other people so 100 percent there's all these biases there's if we start to break them all down like 150 different things that could be going on when we make a decision, primacy and recency are some. And when I go in as a consultant and evaluate a process, I say what are the influences? What are what's driving our behavior and our decisions underneath? And go deeper into like why did people make that decision? What's the default at this moment? What are the kind of things like the first impression that we see from people that are going to affect them. How do we solve for that? How do we challenge that?
0: But I have to imagine that's very difficult to do because in an interview process, the very first moments are going to set the interviewer's decision. It's basically like in a few seconds, right?
2: Yeah, and they definitely do. I mean, when they ask people after 30 seconds, like give us a rating of this person who just Mm -hmm. came in shook your hand sat down like how much can you do in thirty seconds they will give them a certain score this person's got a three out of five half an hour later they walk out of the interview they ask them how they did the person still has a three out of five and everyone else is very consistent from this interviewer. Because we just confirmed, like, oh, they look good, firm handshake, executive presence, everything's great. <laughs> and the other person, oh, they're weak in their wrist and their handshake, and they seemed awkward when they sat down. And then everything else about them is around this kind of halo of, like, they were good or they were not good. Mm. So we definitely can't get rid of all of those things. We make these decisions and we use these strategies for a reason evolutionarily, like we can't spend all of our time deliberating on every decision we make, we wouldn't get out of the door in the morning. So we are gonna work with that and say, where can we add structure? Where can we make a process just a bit more consistent Mm. so that we can try to improve it in these little ways that can sometimes make a big impact. So if we use a different assessment and evaluation, maybe that's all we need to really get a big jump in terms of our accuracy. Even though we still have these recency and primacy and stuff, we can't eliminate them all. We don't want to re-bias people like in the other direction. It's not about how can we just push and pull people all over, but some strategies we can use and some things we just live with because there's going to be mistakes we make. There's going to be error Mm -hmm, in that process. So 100% you can't get rid of all of that. And taking out all of the human elements wouldn't be good either.
1: That's where you end up with something like the Amazon instance, right? So if
2: we let it just go by itself, and there's been a lot of discussion around augmenting people and technology, right? Combining AI, not just everyone's gonna be replaced, but what kind of new interactions and solutions are we going to create with the power of humans and data Mm. consistency and the spontaneity or the snap judgments that we make there's going to be some good stuff there
1: you mentioned with the 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 studies about the spatial layout of the office and that kind of thing has that also been something that gets discussed about the interview process as well spatial layout so how that can be adjusted to change that experience or like
2: Yeah. So there's definitely um, a lot about, you know, panels as well as we think about not only like the physical place, but like, are there seven people staring you down? Like, what is that from the applicant's perspective? And then Mm -hmm. what's going on from, do more people help? You know, should we have everyone sitting? Should they watch in a two way mirror on the outside? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of different approaches around what information do we have? What people do we have in the room? How is it set up? Because the applicants experience their nervousness or maybe whether they feel they have to play themselves up will play a big role, too. Mm -hmm. So if I've got seven people, maybe I'm actually trying to, like, self-aggrandize, you know, what I've done in my life. And I'm trying to impress now all these extra people, some of whom just look bored because they're bored, you know. But I think that they think I'm bad or something. Then I have a whole kind of thing going on Mm -hmm. from the applicant's perspective.
1: Well, there's one thing about that panel situation that sort of prevents the interview process from being able to be something where you're really getting getting to know each other if if you are going to be working in some kind of team capacity, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, even if you're working, if you're applying for a job that, you know, has a really strict hierarchical system, you're still a member of a team in some way. And being able to be yourself in that first instance is really crucial, right? Like, Yeah. yeah.
2: So is the interview the right place to gather some of the information that we try to get from it like Mm. should I be doing these skill testing questions with you or why don't I just have you write those answers down like do you need to speak them to Mm. me so what is the value of having a person there in that way we can also separate the part from the valuable interviewers time and reducing you know some of that nervousness, etc., and then move things out onto a really, really short and quick assessment that people can feel maybe is more valid and consistent and is actually. And then we can have the people there for their reasons. Because unfortunately, like where you're looking matters. So if you're making eye contact on video interviews that are very common now, You're like on Skype, like you're not looking at the person because you're looking at the camera and it can make people feel like it's shifty. Mm. And you're not trying to be shifty, but you just like, that's where you look because you're trying to look at them and then you look over here. And we've all, if we've ever FaceTimed, like kind of experienced that.
0: Skype interviews, always a good opportunity to wear pajamas.
2: Yeah, (laughs) on the bottom.
0: On the bottom, (laughs) yes. Um, I was wondering what are uh, companies and organizations currently doing to address some of these limitations? For example, um, I'm thinking of like the m- the mini medical interview mm-hmm. where it's like s- different stations. So the interviewers see you for like a few minutes and then that's it. Are there any other examples that have been attempted to alleviate this?
2: There's definitely um, a bunch of different things that people are testing out, some of which involve the application and what kind of information do we need to present to interviewers and hiring managers, and what kind of information is just administrative. Like if their names are on the resume and we're evaluating those to give a callback, what we find is that there's a huge gap that's consistent across Thousands of people and hundreds of studies across thirty years that putting a name that's more standard North American kind of Caucasian name is going to have a thirty percent higher callback rate for an interview.
1: That's crazy.
2: Yeah. So so companies are obviously now. I mean, I guess it's also
1: not right. (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Sadly, yeah. Sadly, yeah. And
2: applicants know this. They change their you know name. You might use a middle name. You might kind of anglicize a name that is from another culture to make yourself seem more similar, change the you know skills, the kind of stuff that's right. at the bottom. You're,
1: but you're saying oh, perhaps row, that's not remember. relevant information at that stage, right? Like, yeah. We, yeah. Hmm. like if
2: you're telling me you're golfing, and then in the interview, oh, you golf, oh, that's awesome, that's amazing. That's not telling you something relevant to a job if the job has something mm-hmm. to do with golfing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there are um, so tech tools now and plugins and kind of things that people are adding to hiring processes to remove irrelevant information, to gather different relevant information, yeah. to change the you know decisions that are being made. Sometimes maybe these video interviews can be more helpful because you can open the pipeline to more people.
0: This actually reminds me of a story that a friend told me um, about someone that he knew, who knew that he was going for an interview, and he knew who the interviews were. And one of the interviewer was a fan of a certain sports team. So this guy knew nothing about sports, it was basketball. And he went and like researched all about the team, just so he could go to the interviewer and talk about basketball the <laughs> whole interview. And then he got the job.
2: It, it, it does work and that's because we all want you know we're, we're like belonging with someone We form that mm-hmm. connection and yeah. that's powerful the interviewer is human too right mm-hmm. so they respond to these things but the challenge is when that goes beyond like that showed effort they put a lot of work in that's amazing <laughs> yeah. right but there were definitely other people who might not have that information so how can we make that decision good and then you know That person who's very driven, who obviously is like hardworking, you know, willing to do all this stuff, they can have those skills shine through
1: in a more job-relevant way. Um, So you're a PhD candidate now, right? Which essentially I understand means you're you're dissertating. At this point, Every if, day, that, if that can I'm be made a verb. Exactly, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. I'm not
2: taking classes and, and doing my comprehensive exams.
1: So. And does that involve a lot of writing for you? Or, or, like, what what does that look like for you?
2: So right now I'm in a lot of the analysis stage. We okay. have these great uh, data sets of team um processes and this conflict that i've talked about especially in our engineering team data sets which are really lovely very well controlled we collect data at like the same time points every year sort of over all the team members and i've made it very difficult for myself i'm sure a lot of people and choosing their thesis with you know the lack of guidance that sometimes you have is like i'm going to do this i'm going to do this i'm going to do this so i have like 18 highly <laughs> complex data analytic tools and methods that I'm using that are beyond even what we learned in all of the advanced stats like that I was taking. So similar to my master's, which was a bit smaller, I also made that too hard for myself. Okay. I made it very difficult. <laughs> That's what I'm kind of at in terms of analysis stage, and I see that as being a, a big chunk, and then I think we're going to move on to a big chunk of writing. So <laughs> okay. those are the two large uh, hurdles to get through.
1: Wonderful. I mean, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You'll do it. You'll make it. Thank you. I
2: sometimes have had to, you know, simplify. So keeping it simple is really...
0: (laughs) Now, Natasha, we're reaching the end of the episode. So I was just wondering, you know, you're in the midst of your PhD. What are your sort of plans beyond that? What's your, like, dream after this?
2: So um, my dream would definitely be a role that is still pretty flexible, like the flexibility we have and the kind of opportunity to dig into some research and to kind of do amazing things like this, like on the side. I hope to have like a job that kind of has the time for that. And so I've always dreamed it's probably a longer term goal of sort of having my own company to do this consulting, to teach on the side, you know, write a book out of that, like do some speaking kind of like this mishmash of roles and and responsibilities together. But ultimately, the goal of that and of all the work I hope to do if I before I get there or if I don't get there is bringing these insights to companies, to governments and organizations so that they can make better decisions. Because if we created this knowledge and we kept it for ourselves, especially in an applied field like ours in organizational psychology, there would be not really any end use of it Mm. like am and i think this sometimes and it's not the only excuse that i'm not writing all my papers as fast as i should be but i'm like who am i writing this for
1: right so
2: when i think about that and i think oh am i writing this for other researchers to then know but not use and then the people who want to use have these kind of sometimes you know a little bit snake oil salesman companies around them like buy this and do this but those are the least validated and supported things Mm. that grinds my gears and also makes me focus more on application but you know i still got to get those papers out so maybe i should be writing for our fellow academics before i get too ahead of myself
0: (laughs) well thank you natasha for being on the show this is just been just wonderful to have you back again and you'll always be welcome. So maybe a year <laughs> from now we can do a part three. That's it. I like it. <laughs> thank you
1: so much. I am
2: very mindful that you know so many people want to go on gradcast. I want to give them all the opportunity. I want to say it's the most fun experience. so I hope that they enjoy as well. Um, but thank you so much, both of you for your wonderful questions for giving me this platform and for asking such
1: insightful. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. So you have been listening to Gradcast. This is the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. You can catch us on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. And you can also find our episodes wherever you can find podcasts. So iTunes, Spotify, and you can find us on our website at www.gradcast.ca. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Gradcast Radio. And if you'd like to be on the show, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.
2: The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.